I, this morning I'd like to uh, do uh, look at uh, Galatians chapter 3 and let me read just the first few verses and then as we talk I'll go through the rest of the chapter. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Uh, This is uh, a key part of the book of Galatians. And of course, Paul is going to work out in this chapter then uh, what the resolution to the problem is. But as we enter into the comparison in this chapter of Christ and Abraham, it's important, he's already told us, it's important to be clear what saves us. And he says this in chapter 3, well, actually, faithfulness to the covenant. Uh, And he's going to use the illustration that Christ, then, is the faithful one uh, that fulfills the covenant with Abraham. And then the other thing is, well, what are we saved from exactly? And Paul says, he's already said, this dark age, this, uh, this period. One of many ways Paul can refer to the whole achievement of Jesus, as we talked in Sunday school, is in terms of the faithfulness to the covenant. Um, And I think this is the correct interpretation of pistis Christu. uh, That we, you know, the language may not always decide the problem. But when Paul says pistis Christu, that is faith Christ, you know, is it the faith of Christ? Is it the faith in Christ? I believe he means usually faith in the Messiah. Uh, or, or rather the question is, he, does he mean faith in the Messiah? Or does he mean the faith or faithfulness of the Messiah? Sometimes he may in fact mean faith in the Messiah. But I think usually he means he's talking about the faithfulness of Christ. And then we are participants in the faithfulness of Christ. And both ideas play a role in his thought. So in Galatians 2.16, he's just said, we believed in the Messiah Jesus. And so uh, there is the idea there of, yes, we have faith in the Messiah. So it's not that that, though, or that the one term is exclusive of the other. In uh, Romans 5 that we read this morning, it's clearly talking about the obedience of Jesus the Messiah. And that sums up all that Paul has said about Jesus' death. Uh, you know, this is what he's talking about in, uh, here in Galatians 3.21, that he's talking about uh, the obedience, that uh, Jesus is the faithful one. He's the one who has been obedient uh, to the covenant uh, with Abraham. So uh, it is the law, therefore, is the law, of, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, 
then righteousness would certainly have come. And so he's describing here uh, that what was promised being given through faith, the faith of Christ, might be given to those who have faith, who are faithful as Christ was faithful. This is an idea that if you compare Philippians, you know, 2, 5 to 8, that it's the picture there that Christ is the one who has emptied himself and has made himself nothing. And Paul is arguing in Philippians that we are to be imitators of Christ. I believe he's doing a similar thing here with the Galatians. That is, the argument is, how are you saved? Well, you're saved by being a part of Christ, clothing yourself in Christ. You're not saved by being an uh, an ethnic Jew. You're not saved through circumcision. You're not saved through the food laws. So... Uh, the illustration with Abraham is uh, that, you know, if we, if we ask what was Abraham saved from, think of chapter 11 of Genesis, uh, that there is the Tower of Babel, and they, of course, are trying to save themselves. They're trying, you know, this is Paul's argument in both Romans and Galatians, that what people are doing universally might be described as uh, the uh, working under the law. That is the law of sin and death, that they are attempting to gain life according to their own law. What is Abraham precisely? What's his problem in Genesis 12? He's given the promise. The promise is that you will have a son And that through the Son, your name will be perpetuated. And that your descendants will be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. Um, And he, of course, has no real way of perpetuating his name because he's 110 years old and Sarah's womb is as good as dead. And so the argument of chapter 3 is framed within the story and meaning of Abraham. How... You know, will Abraham secure an heir? And the heir then is the means to perpetuating his name, the means to life. And so in Galatians 3, Paul quotes a series of verses from Genesis. Uh, First of all, Genesis chapter 15, which is generally called the covenant chapter of Genesis. That's where, you know, the the, uh, promises are fulfilled then in circumcision but also prior to that he quotes from chapter 12 where the first promise is given and then he'll refer to chapter 18 and so he's promised Abraham is promised a worldwide family and the key notion is set forth that Abraham is characterized by faith or faithfulness that is The faithfulness of Abraham is what secured his promise, is what uh, the means that he's entered into this covenant relationship with God. The closing of Paul's argument here in chapter 3, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, 
Then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So Paul's argument, who received the promise? Those who, uh, you know, were ethnically Jewish, those who marked themselves out. And Paul's argument is no, that in Christ we've received the promise given to Abraham. That is, it's the, the way that God saves us has never changed. It's always been through the promises given to Abraham and Paul's argument. And that promise referred to Christ. It did not say seeds, it, Paul says. It says seed. That is, that Christ is the fulfillment of the promised son through whom the heirs would be as the sands of the sea. So, uh, the covenant promise is not fulfilled through the law, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because the law was never the means that God was using. It was always faith, the faithfulness that was there in Abraham and fulfilled in Christ. So do you clothe yourselves in the law or do you clothe yourselves in Christ? And to be clothed in the law, I mean, that is a life. That is, that is everything about you because you're, a, you're ethnically, uh, you're going to practice the food laws. You're going to, your daily intercourse with people is going to be on the basis of the laws. But Paul says this does not accomplish righteousness. That is, you're not really made right as a Jew. You're not really made right by following the law. But he says, if you're clothed in Christ, then you have passed beyond the mere surface achievements of the flesh. No longer are you Jew, Gentile. That's a fleshly thing. No longer are you male, female. That's a fleshly thing. No longer are you slave free. That is, it's not according to those sorts of distinctions. Uh, these things all pertain to the divisions that were there in the law, right? That clearly one of the prime markers of the law was between Jews and Gentiles. That was the distinguishing marker. Male, female, slave, free, all treated differently under the law. So the law divides. But his point is that those, the, the law does not touch the reality of the heart, circumcision is of the flesh that's a marker in the flesh and that's what these false teachers are wanting the the, uh, Galatians to do is to get circumcised they want them to practice the food laws but Paul is saying well that's not the obedience that comes from faith that's a return to something that is on the order of a tutor or a childlike condition he says you're past that Christians are saved then, first of all, not by their own faith, but by participation in Christ. In this sense, Paul understands salvation as as sharing in the destiny of Christ. As Christ is the representative figure for all of us. If we have the faith of Christ, then we are co-participants in who Christ is in his destiny. So, you know, think of Abraham. Is Abraham an example of faith in Christ? No, that's an impossibility. There there is Abraham. uh, Or is Abraham an example for others to follow? 
And that's Paul's argument here. We're, we're fulfilling the promises, the faithfulness of Abraham, because Christ is the truly faithful one. And so Christ, you know, Abraham is a typological foreshadowing of Christ himself. He's the representative figure whose faithfulness secures blessing and salvation for others. Uh, We could even use the term vicariously here, but we don't mean the word vicarious in the way that Luther meant it. We mean it that he achieves this and then our participation in it achieves it for us also. So the problem that faces God, the problem that faces the human race, is that Israel has been faithless. She's been faithless to the commission to be the light of the world. How then is God to reveal his own covenant faithfulness? And Paul's answer is that God's faithfulness is revealed in and through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. He's the representative Israelite. And of course, that's Paul's argument. By being in Christ, you're true Jews. Where's true Israel? Is it that country over in the Middle East? No, Paul's saying that has nothing to do with anything. That you, the church, are true Israel. So the argument here is that we're saying that we're not, we've missed the boat a little bit in talking about simply having faith in Christ as if Christ does everything and we just need to believe in our heads real strong you know and you know kind of squint your eyes when you do it because it's a real hard belief no it's bigger than that it's your whole being that you're 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 it's the faith of Christ that you're putting on and that's the it is the natural expression of the Greek the other thing that makes God rather than God and Christ, the, con, the, the object of faith. This is the way Paul talks throughout. You know, when you talk about faith, who do you have faith in? Well, actually, your faith is in God in the position of Christ. That is, Christ is demonstrative. He's our model of faith. It's parallel in form here uh, to Galatians that's saying we have the faith of Abraham. Christ is the truly faithful one. This is true of both Romans and Galatians 3, that we are to then put on this faithfulness. We're to be faithful in the same way that Abraham was faithful, in the same way that Christ was faithful. Um, And it gives coherent sense to Christ's faithfulness expressed in death. Think, Think here of Abraham. What is the faithfulness of Abraham? Well, it consistently talks about he's facing the condition of death. His body's as good as dead. Sarah's womb is dead. And yet in that condition of being as good as dead, he has, he's still faithful. He still trusts God to give life in the midst of death. And so Paul's overall structure you know, of his theology is the idea that Christ is one who is faithful to death and we then too are to likewise take up our cross and follow Christ. See, that's the difference here. If it's the faith in Christ, we don't really need to pick up our cross. We can say, well, thank you, Jesus. Uh, You died so that we do not have to. 
And that is a form of Christianity. But actually the New Testament says Christ died. Now pick up your cross and follow him. That is inclusive of an ethic. Um, The idea here is that uh, instead of our faith being, you know, uh, centered on a kind of anthropocentric faith, it's theocentric and Christocentric. It's Christ's faith. The point here is it's not our intensity of belief or our capacity for believing in God that saves us, but it's our uh, participation in the faithfulness of Christ. That makes a huge difference, though it may sound slight. The other thing, it grounds Paul's emphasis on the inseparability of faith and love. That is, the one that is faithful, the the one faithful and loving act of Christ on the cross, is one that we continually reduplicate in our lives. So, just as the faithfulness of Abraham constituted a holistic departure from, you know, Babel, the founding of a new, new nation, a new people, you know, it's social, it's cultural, it's political, it's inclusive of an ethic, so too the faith of Christ. Participation in God's work through Christ in the Spirit. It's not focused on this singular response in your head, but it's receptive faith or the faith you know, uh, that is spread over the whole range of human life. It's active, it's passive, it's you know, our attitudes, it's our it's bodily, it's inner, outward. And if you start reading the New Testament with this in mind, it, it hits you. Oh, yeah, that's what it's been saying all along. You, know, you just think of, you know, in Thessalonians, you just go through and read a little bit of Paul. Continually bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. That's not something you're doing in your head. Oh, I believe real intensely in Jesus. No, that's something that you're walking out in your life. He says, you became imitators of us in the Lord. That is your, that Christ's faithfulness is a faithfulness to be imitated. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This is a work of service. Um, Salvation is a practical outworking of following Christ. That is, we begin to practice salvation. Salvation is not something that happens in your head that will be carried out in the future. Salvation is born, you know, it's what we, it's a fruit that is continually with us. In, uh, uh, he says, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You became imitators of the churches of God. So is Paul against work and only for faith? No, that's missing the point. You know, this is the, the Lutheran Calvinistic mis, misunderstanding. Paul's not against works. He's against the idea that the works of the law, circumcision, food laws, being a Jew, that's what he's talking about. But Paul will continually use the, the idea of works. Of course, works. Is it works righteousness? Well, it's not works righteousness if you're talking about the works of the law. No, he's saying that it's the righteousness of being faithful that has given to us in Christ. So 
The faith of Christ, maybe the, the simple way is here, here to say it, it's inclusive of ethics. That is, his faithfulness is inclusive of his manner of walking. And so our faithfulness to Christ, our putting on the faith of Christ, is inclusive of the way that we walk. And so earlier readings of Galatians, and this is just, it's not just in you know, particular churches. I think this is just across the board. That in, uh, in the Refor- Reformation tradition, we have so focused and emphasized the wrongness of justification by works. And what is meant there, you know, is a kind of Pelagian notion, oh, that through our free will we can do good works and then be saved. And they're, you know, reacting to a kind of Catholic notion of works. Well, they've made it difficult to articulate any sense of moral obligation or moral effort within the Christian life. And so we have the situation of an evangelical Christianity that statistically is no different ethically than the culture that surrounds us in terms of divorce rates, you know, rates of addiction, rates of, you just go right on through. That Christians are just like their neighbors in terms of ethics. I think there is a failure of theology that is, uh, you know, the idea that we don't do ethics as Christian. Well, uh, ethics is part of, it's in Paul's argument, is all about the faithfulness of Christ. No, that means that we're following Christ. Ethics is not just an appendix. You know, this is the way it, when I was teaching theology, what usually happens, you know, you go through the whole theology and at the end of the class, there's tacked on to the end of the class uh, ethics. Well, that's missing the point. Ethics isn't something you tack on to theology. Ethics is in the very heart of your theology. Um, So... uh, Justification by faith, uh, certainly we are justified by faith, but that phrase should include the notion, no, we're made right through the faithfulness of Christ because we've put on that faithfulness. Uh, Through the gospel events of Jesus' death, his resurrection, God has delivered Israel from the rule of evil and the powers who perpetuate it, And that is a real-world deliverance that we experience in the church. So the faithfulness of God in Christ establishes human faith. Justification or rectification, we might just say making things right, it is uh, cosmic, it's apocalyptic, you know, it's God breaking into time the, through the death and resurrection of this faithful one, the powers which hold the nations in bondage are defeated. Why? Because those powers always exercise their power through the kind of faithlessness be, be, dis, demonstrated in Babel and undone in Abraham. Abraham is faithful in spite of death. Christ is faithful even as he enters into Jerusalem to be crucified. He's faithful unto death. Um, 
So the faithfulness of God is established, and this was, you know, our passage in Romans 8. Nothing can separate us then from God in Christ because the barrier that alienated us has been crossed. Paul says, I testify about these Jews that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What's wrong with the Jews? According to Paul. He said they've missed the boat. They think that they can establish righteousness through being Jewish. Paul says no. You can't establish righteousness on that basis. The knowledge, you know, which Paul himself lacked before becoming a Christian was not that he must have faith rather than works, but that Jesus is indeed the messianic agent of the God of Israel. The faithful one raised from the dead in whom the righteousness that comes from God is disclosed. So it's not law over and against grace. It's not faith over and against works. If we're talking about works in terms of human effort. uh, But the idea is that Paul discovers, you know, it's not all Paul before he was, you know, when he was a Jew, he didn't have the proper inner disposition uh, and was uh, that was not. No, what he comes to is Christ. He comes to to recognize, oh, God is fulfilling the promises of, to, uh, to Israel through Christ. Christ came in, the d- darkness which Christ came into is one by which Paul himself was blinded because of ethnic pride, because of nationalism, because of racism, because of religious zealotry, because of his great learning. Paul himself cites all these things. They blinded me. Uh, I think that we all tend to be blinded then by the same things. Nationalism, ethnic pride, racism. You know, you just go through it. Religious zealotry. Um, I was listening to NPR the other day, and they were talking about the war crimes trials, the, the criminals at Nuremberg. Many of them had their PhDs. These were the, these were the ethnic, you know, the, the elites in German society. They were men of middle class values and morality that didn't aid them in resisting radical evil that was their problem they were evil because they were good germans paul says i was the worst of sinners not because i broke the law he said in regard to the law i was faultless i was zealous for the law I advanced way beyond my fellows. That's precisely Paul's problem because he thinks that that is in some way that ethnic understanding that seeking to establish his own righteousness is the means to salvation. Let me state it in a a frightening way here. I think what Paul is saying, no, that's the organizing principle of evil. Think, you know, what's the Jewish problem? Who killed Christ? 
Was it the, you know, was it the people who were not good Jews? Was it the people who were not? No, it's precisely the Pharisees. It's the best of Jews. It's the best of people. Precisely in their morality, in their ethnicity, in their legal, you know, that, and it's for those very reasons that they kill Christ. So it's not lawlessness, but actually what I'm describing is ultimately a lawlessness over and against the, real, the reality of God's law. But it's in fact the law that man would establish. You know, the law of sin and death. I don't know if you read, uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis has a book, I think it's called, uh, this, is it Paralandra? But he talks about, you know, the, the evil person in the center of the whole thing is actually a, a college professor. And he talks about the guys with the clean fingernails and uh, those who would do evil. They're not really the guys down, you know, certainly we've got criminals and those sorts of people. But who accomplishes the worst evil? Well, it's those people who are the organizers of the culture. Those people who are, in fact, putting into place a system that is itself an alternative to the salvation that God gives us in Christ. You know, the politicians, the religious leaders, the, you know, the outstanding citizens all of whom are willing for others to suffer on their behalf, who are willing to oppress, kill, disempower, destroy you know, people's livelihood, such people are not Christians in the New Testament sense of the word. Um, so this is not an obvious immorality. The problem is that the morality, the law, the legal system, the reigning morality is itself evil. That's what Paul, I think, is arguing. If those who are of faith, who are sons of Abraham, uh, you know, in 3.7, uh, it, it, rather it is those who are of faith, those who have departed then from uh, a kind of ethnic identity. The completion that we find in the body, in the fellowship, is not the sort of completion the Judaizers are positing. Being Jewish or being circumcised or keeping the food laws uh, do not make you part of the family of God. That's just a simple way to put it. Uh, they do not make you a true child of Abraham. It's not enough, Paul says. It's not enough to cut your flesh. It's not enough to eat properly. You need to change up everything. It's not just, oh, you need to change the thoughts in your head. Paul is himself an example of how being focused on the law is the wrong way. He says, now don't get me wrong, the law is holy, just, and good, but the law will make you an enemy of Christ if you imagine that the law is an end in itself. Paul says in you know, chapter 1, you've heard of my former manner of life. I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. I was more zealous for the ancestral traditions than they were. Paul says, that was my problem. Are you so foolish, he says at the beginning of chapter 3, that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is, you're turning back to these fleshly regulations. 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? That is, it's the, the, the embodied faithfulness. And in this chapter, then he's talking about the escape from slavery. And behind a lot of Paul's, you know, understanding is the motif of uh, the Israelites escaping from, uh, you know, uh, slavery in Egypt. And the slavery here, Egypt is representative of the slavery of sin. And the means of escape from Egypt was a divinely directed step-by-step plan. God breaks into history in a remarkable and dramatic fashion, in a pillar of fire, a cloud, in the signs, in the continuing presence of God. But God has done the same thing in Christ. He's broken into history in the life of Christ. It's an even more dramatic breaking into history. Now it is not just God appearing in theophanies, you know, in a cloud of fire, but God appearing in Christ himself as a man. So Christ announces that he is the divine presence in our midst through the miraculous. And this is the real exodus from the slavery of sin. So the basic question of Galatians 3 or you know, why did Christ die? It was for freedom, Paul says, that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He said, you're going back to slavery like, you know, it, by putting on the law. Is the law the thing? Is the law of prime importance? Unfortunately, even our doctrines of atonement, Calvin's Anselm's picture of you know, penal substitution. Unfortunately, they're making the mistake that the false teachers in Galatians are making. They're making the law the thing. The cross does not address the category of Gehenna. It does not, uh, you know, Paul talks about uh, living under the curse of the law, but the law is a curse not because the law is evil, but because it stands, or because, you know, is the law stand over and against grace? No. Grace is a fulfillment of the law because prior to the law, there is the grace given to Abraham. Grace was always there. The law is a curse because it does not contain life. It leads not to righteousness, but it points to transgression. Paul asks this question, why the law then? In 3.19, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, which he's already argued is Christ, would come to whom the promise has been made. The law has a perfectly good function. The law is holy, just, and good. 322 to 25. But before faith came, we were kept in custody you know, like a child here, that's what he's picturing, under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
There's absolutely nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is people's orientation to the law. Those who make the law primary introduce the curse once again. And that's what Paul's warning. So, you know, the cross doesn't put on display uh, the wrath of God, but the virtue of Christ that we are to imitate, imitate his faithfulness unto death. As we lay down our lives in the manner that Christ laid down his life, we take up the cross that he bore. Not to escape wrath, but to model virtue and redemption. Uh, and this is the, this is the gospel. We, we're hitting the universal nature of salvation. Uh, is, you know, we understand what we need saving from. We need saving from the law of sin and death. Not the law given, you know, to the Jews, not the law. No, the universal law is the, the, the law of sin and death. That the law given to the Jews pointed out. That the law given to Adam and Eve pointed out. Um, that there is this orientation to death that is marked out by the law. And Paul will refer to it then as the law of sin and death. And this is the resolution brought in Christ. So the curse of the law is pointing to there is an inherent exile. There is an, you know, that's Israel's problem quite literally. They spend, Israel is in exile, but of course that exile is picturing the inherent alienation of all people. The law demonstrates that everything is shut up together under the power of sin. Torah is not itself the curse, nor does itself, itself bear the blessing. Paul says in 3.22 to 24, but before faith came, we were kept in custody. It, uh, we were protected. The idea of a tutor is he keeps the children safe between home and school, right? Uh, and that was the function of the law. And so the, the convergence between the faith of Abraham and the faith of Christ is to be found in the death acceptance the life course in which Abraham, Paul says, though his body were as good as dead, or the life course of Jesus in which he heads to Jerusalem and death on the cross. Uh, if you are turning back to Torah, to the law, you're missing the end point of the faith of Abraham, the faithfulness unto death of Christ. So Galatians 3 is not an argument hinging on you know, any contrast between grace and law, but it's an argument in which law is taken as an end in itself. So to go back to Torah, to get circumcised, is to return to precisely where the road was blocked, the curse of the law. That's what he's saying in verse 10 and 14. It's like someone, Paul says, refusing a rightful inheritance because of a third party. God intended a single family and promised it in Abraham, and he's now created it in the Messiah. This is uh, uh, verses 15 to 18. Even though it it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has to be ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Paul's saying the covenant with Abraham still stands. 
Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Who received the promise? Well, we did in Christ. The law was not the reception. Being, you know, that was the mistake of the Jews. They thought, oh, we've received Abraham's promised inheritance. No, not yet. If righteousness comes through the law, Paul says, then Christ died needlessly. If the inheritance is based on the law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So he says it's like an adult going back to into the care of a babysitter. The law has become our tutor, but now we've reached maturity and we no longer want to return to the babysitter. The pretense of the law would be to avoid, you know, if you're going to go to the law, you don't need death, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, you just, you have the, the idea of ethnic identity. Did you receive the spirit, he says, by obeying the law? Did you receive the spirit through human effort. Are you complete idiots? I think that's true to the Greek there. Christ was clearly portrayed to you as crucified. Paul uses very strong language in Galatians. He calls them perverts. He says, who's perverting the gospel here? And I think that those who would sell us on the present evil age, those who would preach another gospel trying to please men, Uh, this false gospel is going to bring advancement among men. It will steal your freedom, Paul says. It is a refusal to fellowship. That is, the false teachers are saying, oh, we can't associate with those lowly Gentiles. It's hypocritical. Uh, Those who promote it act so as to please the powers that be. They're trying to promote themselves. It's powerful in that it seems the only logical thing to do, 2.13. It relies on human strength rather than on the grace given to us in Christ. It will enslave you and it will consume your life. If you're going to pursue this way of life, I'm quoting Paul, he says, just emasculate yourself. Go ahead and cut off everything. Because you are disempowering Christ. I mean, that's the imagery here. Because you are a powerless pervert anyway. I'm just quoting Galatians, okay? Um, There is no life in the law. There is no satisfaction in the idol. And so uh, Paul says, I died to the law, through the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And so... uh, we have uh, the idea of setting aside uh, the, the, uh, not the works of righteousness, but the notion that works of righteousness come through the law. So this is what uh, Paul is working with throughout Galatians. In 5.24, those who belong to the Messiah 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's an ethnic. There has been a real change within their heart. Here is the accomplishment of what the law indicated. Ethics, faithfulness to Christ, Christian behavior is at the very heart of what it means uh, to accept Jesus. It's not that we have justification by faith and then as a confession add on morality, but faithfulness to Christ has to do with the inner working of the gospel. Through the gospel events of Jesus' death and resurrection, the God of Israel delivers us from the world of evil. Let's sing our hymn.